Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming today. Um, we are the session on determining the effectiveness of school programs, a strategy for all. Um, I'm Amanda Krantz from Randy Corn and Associates. Um, I have Andrea and Franny, um, if you want to introduce you. Sure. Uh, my name is Andrea DelVal. I'm the Director of Education at the Brooklyn Historical Society. So we'll be offering another sort of counterpoint slash case study uh, to talk about evaluation. And since we are talking about evaluation, we had just a couple of questions right off the bat. And that is, how many people here have done evaluations at their institutions before? Okay. And, and I mean, and that can be anything, whether it's public programs, school programs, any kind of evaluation. So, so there are a few more hands that went up. Okay, so secondly, of those evaluations, how many of them were just internal evaluations, meaning you did them within your institution, distributed them, came up with questions, studied the results? And how many have done external evaluations where you've hired an outside firm? Okay, thanks. So just some of the comments that we'll keep in mind as we go through our presentation. And one thing I'll just say, um, this session's being podcast, so we're gonna stay really close to the mic, and um, we intend to include a lot of discussion at the end and question and answer time. Um, so we'll bring the mic over to us and probably have you ask a question, we'll repeat it into the mic for the podcast and then answer the questions. Um, so bear with us as we adjust to that. Do we have that capability back in the back? Okay, we have somebody who's gonna run out and find out about that. Okay, all right. Um, so just to start, why we're doing this session is um, we're focused on evaluation and school programs. And one reason we're talking about school programs is that they're um, one of the primary functions of a museum's education department. Uh, a lot of resources go into them. They're also something that aren't evaluated quite as much. Um, and with my uh, firm, we often see a lot of exhibition evaluations and slightly less programs um, being evaluated. Um, and one of the other goals of this session is just to show you that there's a lot of ways to do evaluation and um, use it to improve the effectiveness of the school programs. Uh, quick agenda. We're gonna, I'm gonna give a brief overview of what evaluation is for those of you who aren't as familiar with it. Um, and then we're going to go through and um, Andrea will talk about the Brooklyn Historical Society and the work that they're doing there. And then Franny Kent, sorry I didn't give your full name Franny. Um, Franny will be talking about the work that uh, they're doing at Museum of the City of New York, which we also help them um, work on. And then, like I said, we're gonna try and dedicate 30 to 45 minutes to discussion and question and answer. And we really wanna encourage you to ask questions you have that apply to your own institutions. So the definition of evaluation is the systematic collection and analysis of data against stated goals and intended outcomes to help make decisions. And there's three really key things in that definition. And the first part is systematic. Um, it should be structured, uh, not something um, I'd say willy-nilly. Uh, the second part is that it should be against stated goals. Um, so whereas research tends to be more open-ended and exploratory, evaluation is we have a set of objectives that we're looking for, and so we're measuring it against that. And the third part is to help make decisions, and that's really that evaluation, the goal is to be purposeful and um, to help you learn and assess and reflect. 
Um, so that speaks to this little cycle I put here at the bottom, which um, Randy likes to use in everything. And it's called, she calls it the cycle of learning. And the cycle of learning, how we think about it, is that evaluation is somewhere between um, acting and reflecting. And it shouldn't be a start to end process where planning, acting, evaluating, reflecting brings it around full circle. So that's how we see it. Um, Randy often likes to poll the audience and ask them how much they spend doing the top half, the planning and acting, and how much they spend doing the bottom half, which is reflecting and evaluating. Um, but I won't go into that, but we normally find that most institutions find that they spend most of their time doing the top, the planning, acting, and less time doing the reflecting and evaluating, which we consider to be just as important. Um, despite having one unifying definition for what evaluation is, there's a lot of um, variation. Uh, so you can think about it as evaluation with a little e and evaluation with a big e. So evaluation with a little e may be a smaller sample size. Um, you're mostly confident in the validity and reliability, although you have to really set parameters and um, know that the claims that you make really are only this subset of data. Whereas evaluation with a biggie, you normally have a larger sample size, so more reliability and validity. And so you're more confident in the claims that you make on the findings. For this session, we're talking a lot about um, examples from the Brooklyn Histor Historical Society who did evaluation internally and um, comparing and contrasting it to what Museum of the City of New York did, which is they contracted out to do their evaluation. And neither are right or wrong, they just have different purposes and uses for an institution. Um, so doing an internal evaluation, again, the museum staff is the one who, who conducts it and does the analysis. Um, it's normally because of requirements of an institution if they don't have the expertise or the staffing, it's normally a bit smaller. Whereas external can be bigger, larger scale studies. Um, I would like to point out though that I don't wanna say that always internally, um, you have to do something small scale like that evaluation with a little e, but um, that's generally how it comes up just because of resources. Um, but certainly if you have the expertise in-house, you can do larger scale projects. I'm gonna pass it off now to Andrea, who's gonna talk about her work at the Brooklyn Historical Society. So again, I'm the Director of Education at Brooklyn Historical Society. I've been there now for almost seven years, and just before I started at the Historical Society, they had been closed completely to the public for a period of about five years for a major renovation project. They didn't anticipate that it was going to take as long as it did, but it did, and so it was really tough to start building a reputation again for public programs, for school programs, and to let people know that we were open to the public and doing that kind of outreach. And so along the way, we hit two major hurdles, um, and that was first after the reopening in about 2003, we grew too fast as an organization in the programs and things that they were trying to do and initiate, and we had to downsize. And so there were some cutbacks in 2005 to staff and some of the programs that we did. And the second hurdle being the current economic downturn that we are in. But through all of this, we've offered school programs that address the, the New York State 
social studies core curriculum. Um, one of the sessions this morning was talking about the 21st century skills, which is something that New York State is also looking into being a part of. And also our social studies programs or our school programs follow the National Council for the Social Studies um, core curriculum guidelines. So it feels, it goes through everything we do with our exhibit tours, professional development for teachers, um, multiple school visit partnerships, in and outside of the classroom walking tours, all the kinds of programs that we do that fulfill our mission. And to give you a little bit of an idea about our size, as an organization, we have 31 employees that are all full-time and about a $2.5 million operating budget. And so that'll somewhat contrast, and you'll see where we're coming from is doing an internal evaluation versus um, how and why we're working towards hiring an outside firm to help us do an external, or hire someone to help us do an evaluation externally uh, when we get there. So secondly, a little bit about our tours. One of the most exciting features for our education department right now is that we received funding for the first time in last fiscal year in 2010, the 2009-2010 school year, to offer free guided tours for all of our exhibits at the museum. So it was the first time we were able to advertise to teachers and to schools throughout the city that you are able to bring a class of students, up to 30 students, to schedule an exhibit tour for free. And so we were very excited and that that has continued for this current school year. And what a time we thought to start evaluating programs and thinking about what we want to do because we knew that our audience was going to continue to grow. And as we're thinking about new exhibitions that we plan to unveil in about 2012, how can we use this information to shape what it is that we're currently working on? But the trick really was deciding which programs to evaluate and how was going to be a challenge. Because with an education department that has just three full-time people, including myself, we also hire a team of per diem educators. We have volunteers that also assist us, but full-time it's three people in the department. And so how do you undertake doing an evaluation where you have to prioritize staff time, and you have to figure out who's going to take on what aspect of the evaluation and really bring it to fruition and putting it together. And I'm fortunate that everyone on the education team had at various points in our careers been part of evaluation processes before and so that we knew there was a lot of effort that had to go into gathering the kinds of quantitative and qualitative information that we would like to collect and not just do something but really figure out how we could use it in a meaningful way because we didn't want to fall into the trap of deciding that we wanted to begin evaluations then collecting a bunch of stuff and not really knowing how or what to do with it all and be uh, very mindful of how we wanted to manage that and develop a manageable way of acting on the results. And so then a little bit more about the methodology that we followed. For how are we gonna go about doing the evaluation, the logistics of conducting an internal evaluation. And so this approach is very much a small scale, humble approach to doing evaluation that I think can be enacted at many other institutions of our size and bigger and so right off the bat, because of our increase in school programs, we decided we wanted to look at solely 
school tours. So the people that are coming to our institution and going through exhibitions. We weren't going to evaluate teacher programs yet. We weren't going to evaluate the in-school or off-site programs. We were sticking solely to the tours that we conducted on-site. And um, during the 2009-2010 school year, to give you an idea of the increase, we had a total of 2,700 teachers and students on our school tours in the building. Then the, and that was when there was a charge, and the charge was $95 per tour. When we were able to offer them for free, the following year we had over 7,000 students and teachers, so that's more than two and a half times the original number that we had from the year before, and so we knew that we wanted to keep track of what is it that we're doing, how are we doing it, and how are they finding value in what the programs that we're offering. And this was really, doing this evaluation was our first pass at doing this, and we hope, like I said earlier, that we could afford to hire an evaluation firm in the process. But right off the bat, one of the most important things we realized is that we have to involve our stakeholders in this evaluation process. It can't be something that we just think about and develop in and by ourselves and for ourselves. So to start with, before we even started thinking about the kinds of questions to ask, we just called a dozen of the teachers that we'd worked with in the past or the previous year and just over the phone had asked them some basic questions. Um, wanted to know from them, some quantitative and some qualitative, but how long could they stand to do a survey? Because we know when they bring a school group in, the reality is the kids are squirming, they've gotten off the bus, they only have X amount of time before the students can use the bathroom and put their coats and jackets on and get back to the front curb and do all of that. And we'd be trying to capture teachers to do a survey somewhere in that time period. And so we just made a few calls to gauge what teachers' recollections of their visits were and what did their students take away from it, and if they could, how were they able to reinforce that information that they used from the trip to us that day. And so we really wanted to know what were teachers' existing perceptions of Brooklyn Historical Society and how did this match up with what we wanted to provide as an experience. And an experience we know is something that's very important to audiences when they come to our institutions. It's not enough to just look, listen, and learn anymore. You want to walk away with an experience and something that has happened to you and that you can take away from it. And so by talking to teachers sort of anecdotally, we were able to start formulating how logistically we would be able to do this. So we wanted to know how and why did teachers find value in what we're doing? What exhibits do they currently find useful that support their curriculum? And what might teachers want to do differently? We know as a historical society some of the future topics that we plan to explore in our collection with objects in our collection, but how well do those match up with what teachers' expectations are going to be when they're bringing classes, especially if we anticipate continuing to offer free tours and we want them to come back again and again. So why did we want to know it? Well, we wanted to know and to do the evaluation because we wanted to think about how can we deepen the services we offer to teachers if we can't increase our own staff size and we don't currently have the budget and we have certain constraints, how can we deepen the services based on the staff that we have? And if we are quantifying and qualifying the action steps that our education department is going to take to increase the size of our audience, 
you know, how can we write these as specific action steps and thinking ahead about a strategic plan as an organization so that evaluation isn't just a passing activity that we do on one year, but it's something that's incorporated into something we think about doing periodically, how often will it be, how can we make that part of the overall institution. And they might not be questions that we can all answer right away. We're working on it in progress, but there are things that we needed to, to start with. Because I'm sure this has happened to people in the audience before. When you're putting together a plan, especially if you're putting together, say, a grant project or proposal, and you get all excited that you design this terrific project, and you've written it out beautifully, you have all the right sources, all the right people are engaged, you hit send, on the grant or the proposal, it's accepted, and you find out you get the funding, you receive the check, and so you're like, okay. You start working, you roll up your sleeves and dig in, and then you look around and think, gee, we need more staff, and we need more money. We need more time to figure out how we're gonna do this and to make it work. And we didn't wanna fall into a similar trap with evaluation. We thought if we start asking these questions and developing and doing this stuff by ourselves, we didn't want it to wind up in a file or on someone's desk with data that we didn't have a systematic way for dealing with it because then it simply becomes too overwhelming for anyone to do anything with. So then we selected a certain period of time. So we decided on the latter part of the 2009-2010 school year from March to June, which also happened to be the busiest time of year for school tours for us because in New York State, the um, reading and math tests happen in the spring. And so when those are finished are when teachers are more amenable to taking their students outside the classroom and doing other activities too. So they happen to be the busiest times for us. And so we thought we'd capitalize on that by starting to do these surveys and evaluations and distribute them only in teachers' grades K to five. So we picked a fixed amount of time and we picked certain grade levels because that sort of captured the majority of the folks who come and visit us. And so at the beginning of each tour, we announced that we would be distributing these evaluations for teachers to fill out, and at the end, we would give them adequate time to do so so that they wouldn't disappear at the end. And so we just developed a simple half-sheet survey, double-sided, on a clipboard that was given to each teacher at the very end of the tour that took about three to five minutes to fill out in its entirety with thoughtful questions, some of them quantitative and some qualitative. And we asked very typical questions, the how did you find out about us, how many years have you been a teacher, um, and to the longer questions where we asked them to describe a moment in each section of their tour, and we listed the sections of the tour based on the sections of the museum they visited. What could they tell us about those sections that reinforced their curriculum? And we also used these surveys to gauge their interest in future exhibitions. So some of the surveys had a question that asked about, have you ever heard of the Brooklyn Navy Yard? The Brooklyn Navy Yard, which was formerly the United States Navy Yard, opened in 1801, is this terrific, terrific site that we plan to open programs at in the year 2012, but we realized that though there are many, many schools in and around the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which is in close proximity to the Historical Society, very few teachers were aware that it was something that was open or going to be open to the public and that it carried such historical significance. So we started to ask questions about if they don't know anything about it now, how are we gonna get them to go there, be interested in making it align with their curriculum? So we asked about that. 
And the result was that we found some very useful information about the schools who came for our tours and very basic about how did they find out about us, mostly was word of mouth. Um, secondly was they had either attended a program and then had heard through word of mouth that the program was worth coming to. So despite all that we've spent on brochures and um, things that are available on the website, it's still word of mouth that seems to be the strongest means of, of communicating things to teachers. And so where are we now? So we've stalled a little bit at this point because we haven't quite figured out internally what's the best way for sharing this information. So because we don't have a systematic way of doing this, this is something new that we've done now, we don't have a systematic way of sharing this data because we want to be able to sit down with the library and archive staff so that they are understanding how is it that we're making use of the collection. We also want to, of course, make this of use to the development department for fundraising efforts so that they can see where is it that our interest is and where can we find more um, funding opportunities and partnerships to develop with schools based on the kind of work that we're doing. And of course, how to synthesize the information so that we're using it for training purposes for educators in our new department, or in our department as we hire new educators. So, and as an organization, as a strategic plan and we want to incorporate it into that, we're trying to think now, based on what we just collected this past spring, what is it that we're going to do with that? And we know it's because we want to use this to plan more internal evaluations and to shape the kinds of programs that we do. This is an image of teachers at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which is a bit of a different change for us because it's using an outside or outdoor site as opposed to being inside and using collections and artifacts. This is more of a, um, an outside combination tour that we'll be developing. And so we just wanted to be able to figure out how can we do this? How is it manageable? So it was a very small scale first pass at doing program evaluation. And so with that example, I'm going to turn it over to Franny Kent from the Museum of the City of New York. everyone. Uh, the Museum of the City of New York is on Manhattan's Upper East Side and we are in a neighborhood called East Harlem. Um, we have an operating budget of about seven million dollars with about 55 employees and we're going through a major revitalization plan of the whole museum which we've decided to stay open for during this period. So it's been very interesting these past few years and it will continue to be over the next few years as we continue to do programming and school activities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the museum's mission is here. Uh, we really try to connect the past, present, and the future of the entire city, all five boroughs, and we want to celebrate the uh, perpetual, tr perpetual transformation of the city, its diversity, and the opportunity that the city allows for everyone. Specifically, uh, our education department is focused on really working with pre-K up to 12th grade students and teachers. Adult education is not something that our Schwartz Children's Center focuses on. Uh, we're called the Schwartz Children's Center. I always like to tell the story. We're not associated with the famous toy store um, in terms of the store itself. But the FAO Schwartz Family Foundation, which used to own that toy store is how we received our name. They gave us an endowment in 2005 of about a million dollars and that really helps us sustain our education programs for school children and for teachers. 
Um, we have an array of programs here for teachers, uh, for after school um, programming for high school and middle school students. That could include things from examining our neighborhood, again, the East Harlem community, all the way to understanding um, in-depth research processes through our History Day program, which is a regional competition based on the National History Day program. And I saw in the program for this conference that someone was presenting National History Day, I think, from Dallas. So that was exciting because that's a, a major initiative for many uh, states and regions throughout the country. Um, the other programs listed here are along those same lines. Saturday Academy is a free program. We offer American history courses and SAT courses. And interestingly enough, the Brooklyn Historical Society, where Andrea is from, also participates in that program. Um, and finally, we do something in the summer where our middle school students explore East Harlem, think about what urban planners and architects do on a daily basis to sort of sustain and better our city. Lastly, of course, what we're here for today are our school programs. And essentially, we do one-visit field trips, meaning that you know people may come from the same school multiple times with the same children, but our programs are not designed that way. They're designed for one-time, 90-minute sessions. And as Andrea said, we do focus also on the curriculum that the, that the teachers have to focus on, both on a national level and a more local level. Um, what you see here, these adorable children, are working on a program called Traveling Through Time. And this really focuses on the new Amsterdam history that our city is based on. So we look at examples of the Lenape Native Americans before European contacts, and then sort of take the children, travel through time, if you will, on this uh, journey to understand how our city changed from that pre-European Native American-based community to what we call the company town of New Amsterdam. Here what the children are doing is using objects. All of our programs are inquiry-based or discussion-based, so we don't do any lecturing, and we like to use as many primary sources, which could be in our exhibitions or could be things that we hold up and show the children, like maps or images, and also objects as well. So the little girl on your left is holding a bed warmer, or she's excited to discover that that's a bed warmer. And these students here are working with a wooden clog, and underneath that is actually an ice skate. So these are three objects that they would have to sort of figure out what they are and who used them, what they're made of, et cetera, et cetera, during this traveling through time program. The thing, the reason that we have these images up for the Traveling Through Time program is because um, these are fourth grade students. Traveling Through Time is our most popular program because it meets the standards of the teachers and the students so well in terms of their curriculum to focus on New Amsterdam history. Um, when we thought about doing an evaluation, we definitely knew we wanted to focus on something that existed now, but we knew we would continue to do in the future. I mentioned that the building is going through lots of changes. Because of that, so are our programs. But this idea of focusing on new Amsterdam history, Lenape history, is something that we wanted to stick with. So the Traveling Through Time program is what our evaluation is actually based on. So what did we want to know? Really what we wanted to know is do one visit field trips to city or history museums have any impact on children when they're back in the classroom? Now this for us was a huge deal because as Amanda will either share with you or she can attest to, 
in, f in figuring out how to do this and seeing who else has done this throughout the country, I think, right, we sort of look for, we couldn't find anyone else who is examining this particular question. And for us, this is a question that goes way beyond the museum. I mean, this is something that we really believe museums in the city, city museum field or history museum field really should know about. How many of us do you want, can I just ask, I, I, we were gonna save question, just to hand raise, if you're in a museum, do you do one-time school visits? Do you do field trips, one-time visits? Okay, so I would say most of us do. I mean, that's what we base our programs on every single day, we're doing these one-time visits. So do they matter? Now, that's a hard question to ask as the director of an education department who bases her whole life every day on these types of experiences, but it was a question that we knew we had to get some answers for. In addition to understanding that very big question, we also wanted to see if the treatment groups, the treatment groups are basically the groups that came to the museum for this one time traveling through time program and then were interviewed after their visit to us. So they're considered the treatment groups. We wanted to know if they understood a particular set of content better than the control groups, the groups who were interviewed before they visited the museum. So we wanted to compare and contrast. In addition to seeing if they understood the content better, we wanted to know if they understood how to use the museum better than the control students. Did they understand that the museum was a resource that they could use to learn all of these types of, um, well, all of this information? Okay, why did we want to know? So. Everything goes back to funding in one way or another. And this really did begin with the idea that, especially, I, I can't speak for across the country, but in New York, what we're finding is that school programs that are these one-time visits that we cannot quantitatively show to funders are doing anything for the kids in the classroom. We're finding that funders won't really accept that. They, they hear that we have qualitative information, that the teachers say the programs are great, they keep coming back, but quantitatively, numbers, statistics, why are you doing these? Why don't you do just semester-long programs or do multi-session programs? So we really had to consider our future funding sources and figure out whether or not this is sustainable. So that was the first reason that we considered doing this. The other two are more internal. We want to know if what we're teaching is sort of the right thing to teach. Do we want to better our teaching practices? Absolutely. And do we want to know what is being taught in the classroom? Absolutely. We really look at this as a partnership between the schools that participate and between the museum itself. So what we did. We definitely worked a lot with Randy Korn, Amanda, and her colleague Stephanie to sort of define the objectives of the evaluation. Included in that process was our director of the museum. So we did meet a lot about what we wanted to know very specifically. We had to decide on the audience. So I mentioned our traveling through time program is our most popular and fourth grade is the grade that comes the most often. So we knew that that was where we wanted to focus. In terms of our control and treatment groups, Amanda and Stephanie helped a lot with figuring out which schools were similar enough in the East Harlem community to use as a control or a treatment group. So we looked for schools that had similar populations, similar scores on certain tests, spoke similar language at home, et cetera, et cetera. 
We also discussed what we hoped the results would be with our museum educators, because they were the ones teaching the program, so we wanted their input based on what they were teaching on a daily basis, what did they hope to learn through this evaluation. And through those meetings, we developed, actually I shouldn't take the credit for that at all, that was certainly a Randy Korn um, activity where they developed the questionnaires and the interviews that they would administer to teachers and to children. And finally, we played a, a lot of time went into making sure that the children were gonna come when they were supposed to, that the questionnaires and the interviews took place when they were supposed to in a very short time frame so that the children retained a certain amount of information or they were interviewed enough time before they visited the museum, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, okay, and with that being said, Amanda is going to explain the findings, some of the findings of this, and then I'll be back again to talk about what we did with the findings. Um, and I'll just add real quickly, um, our sample size was about 150 students. Um, working with students in schools is particularly hard because you have to go through the New York City Department of Ed and get approval from them. We have to send out consent forms, get consent from parents um, before we can work with the students at all. Um, so there's a lot of all this stuff that happens as well. Um, we did end up with 150 students who gave us permission from three different schools. Um, about half were in the control group, so the ones who didn't get the program before we did administer the instruments, and the other half were in the treatment, so they did get to go to the program before they got the instruments, um, before we administered questionnaires and interviews. Um, so I cherry-picked some findings to share with you. Um, so this is one of the findings from the questionnaire that we administered, which explored students' um, attitudes about history, uh, museums, um, ideas about primary sources, um, and that's actually what this question is. So we gave them um, a fill-in-the-blank statement, and it was, we know what we know about history from blank. And they were given six options, and we're allowed to pick two. Um, so the, um, in this columns here on this table are the six options, and if you follow by the total, that's of the total control and treatment students, and then we separate it out by control and treatment. So what this shows is that, positively, um, the, the children who came, the students who came to the program were more likely than the control students to select um, primary sources. So if you see the comparison of studying objects and maps from the past, 22% um, of the kids who did not go to the program selected that, while 36% of the kids who came to the Traveling Through Time program selected it. So that's a 14% difference. Um, the other things you notice is old photographs. 15% um, of the control students selected that, while 33% um, of the treatment, which is, which is great. Um, as part of our process, we did questionnaires. We also did a long interview with the students where we showed them pictures and we gave them an object. Um, so here's the pictures and things that we showed them. So in the left corners, we, we didn't use any words to describe this, we just showed it to them um, and referred to it as picture A. And this is an image of the Lenape and Dutch trading. Um, picture B is a picture of the Lenape village. Um, picture C is a picture of New Amsterdam. And then we also, towards the end of the interview, we gave them words to use to talk about these pictures. So after they talked about it without having any context, other than we're talking about the New York City from long ago, we gave them these words to use and see how that adjusted the way that they talked about the images. So 
um, one of the things Randy had mentioned was about funders and quantitative data. Um, and we did do interviews, um, but one of the things we did was rubric score them. And this is a way that we can use all that really rich, great qualitative data, but use it in a quantitative way. So it's a, kind of a long process, actually. We, we did these interviews in February and March, um, got the transcripts back by um, May. Then we started developing a rubric, which took us to June. And then we had to find unbiased people to score it using this rubric we created, which uh, we just got all the data back and have analyzed it. So it's a really long process. But um, the rubric we created, we used four different levels. And they go on a continuum, so starting at below beginning to what we consider accomplished. So the rubric I'm showing you here is for um, being able to talk about the historical significance of the Lenape. Um, so at the beginning is where the student can explain that the relationship of the Lenape in New York City at all, or they are kind of guessing or can't quite get their hands on it. Um, whereas at the accomplished level, the other end of the spectrum is that the student is providing a very logical and accurate explanation um, in depth. It may be short answer, but it's very succinct and they clearly can connect Lenape to New York City. So using this rubric, the next table I'll show you is the results. Um, what we found is there, at the bottom, by the way, are, are little statistical significant um, indicators. Um, there is a statistically significant difference between the control and treatment students. Um, the treatment students were better able to describe how the Lenape um, related to New York City history. Um, however, you will notice that there is a lot of variation in there and there's a lot of room for growth. So the students, um, they had some trouble being able to, while they may be able to identify the terms, they couldn't really talk about it in terms of New York City history, which is a really interesting finding for, for teachers and, and for everyone. Again, these were fourth graders. Um, and then the third finding I wanted to show um, during the interview, this was something we added on. We actually went through all the transcripts, and as we were reading through them, we noticed, hey, there's a lot of kids who are referencing the museum trip. So um, from the treatment students, we counted up how many people actually brought up about, oh, well, I learned that at the Museum of the City of New York. Um, so what we found was 28% of the kids mentioned this when we didn't at all identify the museum or that the museum was related in what we were doing. This was not something that was disclosed to the kids. So this was really positive that they are associating New York City history and what they, they learned about New Amsterdam and the Lenape with the museum. Okay, and then I'll bring Franny back up. So we say, what do we do with these results now? Well, this is by far not the end of this process. I mean, 150 students out of you know, thousands and thousands of school children throughout the city doesn't necessarily prove anything. But what it allows us to do is begin this process of looking closer at the kinds of programs we're teaching and understanding how children are thinking about them back in the classroom. And hopefully we'll get additional funding to continue doing this with more students, with different grades, and with additional programs. For me, though, what I will say, and Amanda touched on this, um, I really think it's interesting to recognize that, and she didn't show all of the findings that helped get me to this idea, but many of the questions were asking children not to just define a particular concept, or a word like Dutch or New Amsterdam or Lenape, 
but we wanted to get to that level of critical thinking, the next step of being able to apply those words and those ideas into anything else that they're discussing in the classroom. And that didn't go as well as we hoped, I think, for in the general sense. We really saw that between control and treatment, there were not many differences in how children were able to apply the content that they learned at the museum. And I think for school teachers, as well as museum educators, this is a big deal. I mean, teachers work in New York City on units about these topics for months in certain cases. And to not recognize that students can speak about this information on their own or prompted by an image or an object is something that teachers, I think, should be aware of so that we can really look at the processes of teaching social studies in classrooms and in museums. And so we're really hoping to be able to take these results and then formulate new ones based on new evaluation in the future. And I think that wraps up this portion. Um, I know that there are a few questions we want to ask you. I'll bring Amanda back again. And I hope that you enjoyed hearing about these two examples of evaluation in New York City. Um, okay, so we have almost 35 minutes to do questions. So I was gonna lead off to start prompting the conversation and starting the question and answers. Um, so the first thing was um, posing this both for Andrea and for Franny. So for Andrea first, um, how you decided to conduct the evaluation, why you decided to conduct it internally, and then for Franny, why she decided to contract out to do it. Um, and um, I'm gonna bring the mic over to us. Um, as we go through and open up the questions, again, for those of you who may not have been here at the beginning, um, because this is being podcast, I'll have you ask the question out loud and then I'll repeat it into the mic for the podcast and then we'll answer the question and go about it like that. And if discussion starts among different people, I'll try and figure out a way to facilitate that. So I can say off the bat, for Brooklyn Historical Society, the reason why we started or wanted to do an evaluation was in part prompted by, and I'm going to do a quick commercial here, for the Seminar for Historical Administration. You may have seen some information about that at this conference, which is a professional development opportunity that I encourage you all to look into. I was a participant in this seminar last year in 2009, and it's too loud. Oh, should we move over? Yeah, do you want to try my seat? <laughs> Why don't I just bring it back? Well, we wanted to stay mobile in case we took questions from the group because, again, it is being podcast. But if it's giving you feedback, just let me know. Um, and so one of the sessions that they had done at that seminar was talking specifically about evaluation. And even though we weren't in a position as an organization to do something larger scale, we realized that evaluation of all the things that we kind of tackle on a yearly basis was something that received too little attention. And so we wanted to begin 
with some of the um, articles and instruments, tools that we already had, being able to talk to colleagues who have done larger scale um, evaluations, in my case, asking Franny, so that we have something to work towards, but just so that off the bat with what we can do, we're starting with some very basic means of evaluating the school programs that we currently have and knowing that we're going to be changing them, making sure that we're aligning our efforts with what is happening in schools because that's our major audience in New York City. So in terms of external evaluation, I think I touched a little bit about, uh, upon this in the presentation, but we've done internal evaluation in addition to this. We've also worked with uh, Randy Corner and Associates to do some internal evaluation as well, but we didn't really understand the idea of impact and getting to a level of developing a questionnaire and interview and rubric, et cetera, et cetera, required a lot more resources and time than we had. Our, edu edu our education department is five full-time staff. And so we just, going through this process, which Amanda described, took months. I mean, we started at the beginning of the school year last year, and we never would have been able to do that on our own. So I think the scope of this and what we wanted to find getting into the schools to do these types of questionnaires and, and interviews is something we couldn't have done on our own. So that was our reason for external. Yes? I, we started in the summer of last year um, figuring out which schools we'd work with, um, defining which neighborhood, which program we wanted to focus on. So, and they're still working on the findings. So this is over a year now, maybe, what, 14 months right now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I say, especially, um, I mentioned we had, we go through the New York City Department of Ed um, because this is a big scope. We're working with school students. We need a lot of approval. Um, and that process takes a long time. Um, we submitted to the um, New York City Department of Ed just even our research proposal explaining to a T what we're doing, how this is going to affect the students um, at all, um, if they feel uncomfortable answering questions, all that kind of stuff needs to be in writing with the New York City Department of Ed. And we submitted that in December. I don't think we got official approval until February. So even that process, there, it's a lot of time. OK, another question. Let me start up here, and I'll go back. So the, qu so the question was um, doing evaluation internally if you have staff, uh, have a hard time getting staff motivated and on board to do the evaluation. That's a really good question because off the bat it did seem for the busiest time of year and to let them know that they were going to have to build in more time for the program as it already existed which was a packed one hour time slot. Um, it wasn't something that people weren't willing to do because of course we want to learn from the evaluations how we can make the programs better. But it was really setting aside some meeting time just to talk about evaluation almost in exactly the same terms that Amanda outlined at the beginning to explain the importance of doing it, that it's not any firm, correct answer, and that 
um, it was something that we're going to do on a continuing basis. And so it was something that we kind of proposed and explained that this is why we want to do it, this is how we're going to do it, but it was important to address that people did feel, you know, at first, this is just one more thing that we're going to have to learn and cram and fit into that time. So we tried to present it, you know, in a step-by-step -step way as much as possible. Go ahead. To be honest, I have no idea. I don't deal with the budgets. I just do the work. But <laughs> the question was about the price range of uh, an evaluation that we hired uh, Randy Corn Associates to do. I will tell you that we had to apply for a grant to do this study. So even though we're using these results to hopefully get funding for school programs, we had to get money to hire an uh, external firm. And we asked for 90, I think it was 90,000, oh my gosh, it was either 50,000 or $90,000. I know that's that's a big range. Um, and based on what we had, we received the funding and what we had then dictated what we could do. So we started off on, I think, a much bigger scope, looking at more than one program, um, looking at more students, but we had to tailor that down. I think it was $90,000. Um, we had to ta tailor that down to make it fit into what, oh gosh, you have no idea. You know, if you really want the real number, I am happy to send you an email if you want to ask for my contact information because I don't, I'm not trying to be silly, but I just, it's not staying in my head, so I'd rather give you a real number. But it was in the tens of thousands of dollars. So the question, the, oh, the question was about using um, evaluation to recruit um, people to come and attend programs. Um, I'm not, I'm trying to think, I can't think off the top of my head of an instance, but a lot of that stuff is stuff that is more discussed internally within the institution and we may not be quite as privy to that knowledge, so uh, I don't, Andrea or Franny. So let me say what I think you're asking, and if I'm on the right track, if a test that you know is happening in the schools is a point for us to say, bring your students because you're learning that content and we can help you with that content, yeah. is that accurate? Yeah. Got it. Okay. So yes, I, I will not speak for Andrea, but I think we're in a similar situation being from New York City. Uh, there is a standardized, there was a standardized test for social studies in the fifth grade and I think it's the eighth grade. 
And we definitely talked to that test in terms of we said to teachers, you have to take this, the kids have to take this test. If you come to us in the fourth grade, you're going to learn some of the content that's going to be on the test. If you come to us in the beginning of your fifth grade year, the test would happen in November. So if you come to us in September and October, we're going to help the kids review the information that they need to know for the test. And similarly for eighth grade. But what we just learned that this school year, beginning this school year, New York State has decided to cut that test, and it's for a few different reasons. And I think Andrea and I are both really concerned and upset with that choice. Uh, we find that in our classrooms in New York City, teachers often have to teach because of a test, and math and reading, or ELA, is really what the schools focus on. So being able to say to a principal or being able to convince themselves that they're coming on a field trip to a city museum or historical society is because there's going to be a test. But now there won't be one. Um, and we're not sure what consequences that will have for us or f honestly for the students. Mm -hmm. And just, just to add to that, um, that's a natural next question for us to be asking ourselves as an institution right now. That's not our priority. It was more or less we're asking about programs that we're going to be readying ourselves for the next wave of exhibitions we're going to have because we're going through a, another year and a half long renovation project. So a lot of space and exhibit space will be closed. But that's a really good way. And because the tests now have been eliminated in social studies, we need to rethink how we are marketing ourselves to schools because social studies, unfortunately, isn't necessarily a, st a selling point for teachers in schools anymore. What is, is showing them how they can read primary sources that align with English language arts standards because those are the things that they're having to pay attention to and how they're being assessed as administrators and as schools is really based on their reading and math scores. So we're trying to think, well, what sorts of skills translate into using that? We all know that social studies is reading, but now we've got to really retool our language so that schools understand coming to us isn't just extra, but it's really supportive of what they're already doing. It's New York State. So what our mission as an education department is to show how national events played out on local streets of Brooklyn. So we're always thinking about what's going on in, say, the American Revolution, but the first battle that was fought after the Declaration of Independence was signed was fought in Brooklyn. And so then we bring it to the primary sources that are in our collection that speak to the American Revolution. So it has to do not just with Brooklyn and New York State, but we're making direct links to national history. Do you mean? Uh, if you were going to apply to a program, they say, what is the community you serve? Where do you bring the school from? Where do you? Do you mean geographically or? We do. 
we leave the we do off-site programs in the schools when we're talking about New York City or for Brooklyn Historical Society the vast majority of schools that visit us come within the five boroughs of New York City so they're coming within a G but you know it's a very densely populated city I mean Brooklyn alone has two and a half million people and so we're reaching out to a group and you know people from all over well in schools Right. Well, hopefully. If you're talking about, I don't want to speak for Franny, maybe you have a different interpretation of, of the question. I know. We, it's, it's hard. Yeah, okay. we can stand so together for this podcast. At the Museum of the City of New York, on a, a year-long uh, basis, we see about 40,000 school children and teachers. And that combines all the programs that I had listed in terms of professional development for teachers or after-school programs or these daily school programs. We, our audience, we feel, is the five boroughs, as Andrea mentioned, but we have visitors coming to us internationally. They're not necessarily school children all the time, but we do consider ourselves to be the authority on New York City his, as a collective five boroughs. That's sort of what we say we are, because we're the museum of the city of New York. I will also say, though, that there are two other levels of where we reach out to. We focus on American history when we both work with teacher groups for the Teaching American History program. So as Andrea mentioned, understanding American history sort of through the New York City lens, and we do that at the Museum of the City of New York too. But then we also have a very big, um, we feel it's really important to focus on East Harlem history. That's the neighborhood that we are in, a part of. They're mainly a Dominican population, but we have so many schools in East Harlem where children come from all over the place. So we wanna understand the East Harlem neighborhood, but we wanna use it almost as a case study to show children and teachers how to use a neighborhood to understand the history of the city. So there's, in my mind, three different levels of what our focus is. And mainly our groups come from the five boroughs as Andrea, Andrea's um, do, but we feel like we can speak towards and do speak towards American history as well. So that was a very generic answer, I think, to your question. Sure. You're welcome. Yes. Oh. Hi. <laughs> well, that's someone you know? Yeah, if you're sharing so this for all of us, yeah. and this way for the podcast, it's it's there. Documented. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's about to be a new study that's going to be released, uh, even perhaps as we speak, from National History Day. They've been uh, researching how this is very program specific, but I think it will have implications for history museum studies, uh, history museum programs uh, in other ways, about how kids' participation in that program 
influences their performance in social studies, English, writing, etc. Because anybody who's been involved in that program knows that it's incredibly uh, worthwhile for kids to get involved in because they get, they get all kinds of skills other than history skills. They get writing skills, they get research skills, which are, play out in all the different disciplines. Um, they get uh, presentation skills, they get comfortable talking before an audience, uh, and uh, creating documentaries and things like that. So they received a major grant, I think three or four years ago, and have been working on this study ever since, and it's going to come out within the next month. So I would keep an eye out for it in the, in, you know, the listservs and things like that, or just uh, pull up their website uh, with some frequency, and, and you'll find out about it. And if you aren't involved with History Day, uh, you should be, would be my last plug. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, another question? The question was traveling through time was inquiry based um, and asking whether it was a tour. It's a tour. We consider we call them programs, but that means it combines a tour of one exhibition. And there, sorry, there was an image up, but it showed the children sitting in front of one of the what we call interiors. It basically shows the inside of a Dutch home. And so we do use that as a primary source to understand life in New Amsterdam. But then that is supplemented by the objects that they're you know, the tactile experience and the images and the documents that they, or maps that they might be looking at as well. So the tour part doesn't encompass the entire program, but it, there is an aspect of viewing an exhibition and having that discussion about what they're seeing. Yes. So the question was, are museums seeing a trend away from this idea of a tour and more towards an understanding of, a, of how did you, what did you use? Experiential learning, experiential programming. Um, anyone in the audience want to respond? You'll have to take the microphone, though. Yeah, come on. Uh, so uh, I work with the uh, Kentucky Historical Society, and we have been trying to sort of move down that, that road. What I'm finding is, is that um, the staff to some degree, but the teachers to some degree, are, they're uh, almost more resistant to that experience base because some of them come in, and you know that's why I asked the question about content and can we convince them to come, because they come and they're like, well, I expect to learn Kentucky history. That's why I'm coming here. And, and I agree with the approach that, that Franny takes with, well, let's do some inquiry. How can we look at this artifact and figure out, you know, what this time period was about and how can we learn about Kentucky history that way? So it's been a challenge for us convincing teachers, at least where we are, and we serve the entire state. Um, and it's a, it's a good challenge because I really believe in it, but it, that's, that's something that we've run into is convincing the teachers that, Yes, your students can learn about Kentucky history, maybe not the textbook history that you're thinking they should learn. So that's, uh, that's what I have to say. Here in Oklahoma, between the effect of the recession on schools and no child left untested, there's not a whole lot of time left over for field trips. And so to address the question that was brought up, uh, whether you should try for an experiential type of 
event at the museum for the school group or a traditional guided tour, what we do is ask the teacher, what do you want? Because some take a very traditional point of view. I was talking to a teacher just this week on the telephone. She said, oh, they do much better with a guided tour. Okay, I, you know, who am I to argue with you? Okay, you want a guided tour? That's great. Well, we're, we do lots of those and we're happy to do it. On the other hand, we've been to a lot of meetings this summer, these uh, virtual conferences on the internet and so on, and what we hear over and over again is that the successful programs are tactile, kinesthetic, interactive, hands-on, so that's the direction we're trying to move in, but if somebody says we want a guided tour, fine. Information Age Press has just come out with a book called The Field Trip Book, so, uh, Study Travel Experiences in Elementary and Middle Schools. just going to add really quickly too. Um, one of the things I thought was great about the study that we did for Franny and are still working on and still dissecting all the data, but um, it is an inquiry base and it was great to see that some of this content stuff was coming up with the treatment students, so that was kind of reassuring. I think for some of those teachers who don't think of those more experience-based as being, this is some evidence that experience-based field trips um, rather than just a tour tour um, where there's no discussion that they that they do produce results and that the kids are the children are able to to talk about content uh, uh, Garrett and then I feel like uh, I may be struck dead for saying this, but um, I share the concern about states removing testing and history. And you know, I also feel about you know that we've been teaching too much to the test, but history is being removed from the curriculum, and that's changing what we need to do. Uh, and um, you know, after spending years like developing programs that support testing. Uh, they're removing it, and I think it's time for us to, to get a little bit more active and, and advocate. In New York State, they made a series of uh, decisions about testing and about evaluation that they said were based on the budget. That, uh, and they eliminated one, only one test that cut, across, uh, you know, that cut across a discipline, and that was the social studies test, history test. It, it affected the most number of students, it affected over a million students, and it was the least amount of dollars saved. Every other test was, you know, a subset of a test or a test in a different language or something like that. So um, as we move forward, there's a lot of things that are coming up that are quite critical. The Teaching American History grants are up for reauthorization, and it looks like they may be merged into a more general education fund, uh, and that would be probably a prelude, if not the absolute uh, ending of that program. That supported many of our department's efforts to improve the teaching of history. Um, and there's other efforts underway around the state and around the country. So uh, if you can, be more active in getting in touch with legislatures and promoting the value of history and the value of teaching kids, particularly about our history. Okay. And pass off to you. Are you, go okay. Um, other questions, comments? Okay, well, we still have a few more minutes, so I'm gonna add my own. <laughs> um, Andrea, <laughs> Andrea had mentioned about, um, she addressed a question about 
challenges of was it hard to get your staff on on board for this and get them motivated. So I just wanted to address both of you again, um, challenges to doing things internally or and challenges to doing this contracting out. Who wants to go first? <laughs> okay, so Franny's gonna comment first. The successes, I think, are beyond measure. I, I feel like that was basically what my presentation was about, and I feel that the museum itself is much better off for doing the evaluation that we did. Um, the challenges, well, working within the New York City Department of Education can be a challenge. Um, you know, we had a snow day or two when we were going to have a field trip or the evaluator was going to go to the to the school. Um, we had an educator who taught the wrong program by mistake to a group coming in to do this evaluation, so that needed to be addressed. Um, I would say that the staff was not an issue. They were really on board because they were excited. They're, they're educators. They wanted to know what this what the results would be. I feel like the logistics were the most challenging piece because so many things had to follow one another. You know, control students had to be interviewed before they came and if there was a snow day and the interview couldn't be done, we had to readjust all of our scheduling so that we can accommodate those groups. So there were little logistical issues like that I think that were the most challenging, but for the most part I think it was a very smooth process and I think that was because the objectives and the goals were so well defined and really were um, based on what our director hoped for and what the museum educators who were actually teaching the programs, what they had hoped for too. In terms of challenges, I think I mentioned earlier what our biggest one was and really it's, it's staff time and carving out the time to really look at data and decide what it means for our institution and how we're going to share it internally. So for us, I think the biggest challenge and where we've sort of stalled at this point is now that we've done a first pass at it is figuring out where do we go from here. And that's one of the things that we have to continue to build into as an organization, a strategic plan so that we don't feel like just we're doing this in and out by ourselves as a department, but that it's really infused into everything that we're doing as an organization. And so I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge and one of the um, pitfalls or challenges, I suppose, of doing it internally is just that it is all on you. It's great because we're able to ask the questions that we want and directly you know, access our audience in a different way, but at the same time, we want to be sure that we're not just amassing a lot and creating more work for ourselves, and instead something that we can actually work from. And I'm going to answer my own question. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I've encountered, just challenges with um, when evaluations are contracted out, is um, we want it to be a partnership and we need to know from the museums what their goals are and be very clear about that. Um, and I think that was something that we worked really closely with Franny and that helped the process go smoothly as we made sure we were answering her questions and, and do all this. But um, that's just kind of my note is it, um, it can't just be uh, your contracting, it's theirs, go run with it, evaluators. Um, we really do need to work with the institutions and the museums pretty closely to get the results that you want to answer your question. No more questions? All right, well thank you all for coming and um, that'll wrap it up. Um, but feel free, I can put back up our email addresses if you'd like to contact us. Oh, and I'm passing back to Andrea.
I was just going to say with the minute or two, if you'd be kind enough to fill out the evaluations, they're still available at the back. We'd greatly appreciate it. But, and thank you for coming up to use the microphone for the podcast. We appreciate your participation, too. Thanks for coming.